Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to The Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Mr. Greg Fowler. Greg, welcome to Sandbox Stories. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you. We haven't connected in a while, and I look forward to this discussion. You're another one of our esteemed guests who's not an eye doctor. And instead, we've been connected because you've committed your pretty much your entire professional career to supporting ECPs, and you've worked in a couple of very important product vendor companies. And you're also an eye care patient with a really interesting and important story. We're going to cover all of that. So first, let's talk about from where you came. You're a kid from a small town. What was it like growing up in a small town? It was uh, it was a great experience, I tell you. I look back and I have so many fond memories. I grew up three miles away from Rossville, Illinois. It's a one-stop light town. It's a, it's a town... Um, had a consolidated school with one other small town. So classes, I think my graduating class, I had 30, uh, which by the way, I'll have to note that I think I did graduate in the top 25% at least. <laughs> awesome. Well done. And you say one stoplight town, were you in town or are you even outside of town from there? Yeah, we were three miles away from a one stoplight town. So, you know, we were, you, it was pretty much not the end of the earth, but you could probably see it from there. <laughs> and, and what did your parents do there? So uh, uh, my mom was a homemaker for many years. She went back to school. I was probably in middle school and she went back to school, finished her degree and became a school teacher at the local uh, local school there. Uh, my dad worked for General Motors and he uh, in his uh, later part of his career, he was um, he was a, uh, a representative that traveled. So uh, every Monday morning at, at uh, 8 a.m., he would fly out. He would fly back on Thursday night. Uh, it was kind of a rite of passage. When we got our licenses, we were all co-opted into taking him to the airport on Monday morning, early Monday morning. Uh, but, um, yeah, traveled primarily to, to different GM plants, uh, you know, up in Michigan. And, uh, uh uh, yeah, he, uh, he he built a career and, and uh, ended up retiring early and lived a little bit of the good life. That's awesome. And you're a middle child. Does that mean that you're the peacemaker and the collaborator? No, you know, uh, I've heard you talk about this before. You know, I, I am the probably of the three, the most competitive one. Uh, I grew up really, really trying to outdo my older brother. Um, you know, he set some pretty high marks. Um, you know, if, if he hears about this, I'm going to deny I ever said that. But, um, uh, yeah, I was I was always trying to compete and, 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 and really one up my my older brother. Uh, my younger brother and I, we uh, we have a little bit different of a relationship. It's mostly laughs and yucks with uh, with him. Where are they now? So my older brother is in North Carolina uh, and he is in the uh, banking software uh, business. My younger brother is in Thailand. 
In fact, I got a, uh, a text from him this past week. He just renewed his one-year visa for the 15th time. Oh, my. So, so he's, he's the, the one of the three of us that uh, he is all about life experiences. And, um, you know, the older I get and, and I look at what he's doing, um, you know, he's, uh, <clears throat> he's living life to the fullest. He's having, he, he's enjoying every step of the way. And, and you guys can have full conversations just off of lines from great movies. Yeah. So I, everyone uh, that knows me knows I'm a big movie guy. So, and I'll watch a movie over and over and over. And uh, yeah, you could look at our text strings and there are many conversations that are only movie lines. What is it about us as human beings that wants to put something on repeat, whether it's a great music or a movie? I find that fascinating. I haven't really dug into what that means about us. You know, it's a good question. I, I I just know for me that, um, yeah, I, I watch new movies, but I'll be in a mood where, you know, you're setting your own expectations. I know I like this movie, even though I've seen it, you know, a hundred times, or, you know, when you flip the channels, there's those movies that you just stop, no matter where it's at, you just stop and you watch the rest of it. And, uh, you know, but the thing I know is I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. For me, movies recently have become about creating uh, or rekindling these warm feelings about my family or my kids or somebody else. Uh, I was doing a little laptop work the other night and I put on Moana because my daughters just absolutely love that movie. And then, you know, it became sort of a favorite of mine and my wife's and, and now just the music makes me happy. I wasn't even watching the movie. I was just listening while I was doing some computer work as opposed to listening to a soundtrack. I think there's something about that. You know, what you just said, though, I think is, is a key, which is how it made you feel. Because, you know, I'll be in a certain mood where I want to be inspired, you know, and I, I'll have some go-to movies that just inspire me. They make me feel a certain way. Sometimes I need a laugh, you know, so I have my go-to make me laugh movies. And there's sometimes that, you know, you just feel like you want that adrenaline rush and you may want an action movie, a good, good James Bond movie or something like that. But to me, it, it is. It's about how movies or even music make you feel. All right. So let me put you on the spot. What is a great line from a movie that gives you motivation? That gives me motivation. Uh, it's probably the uh, great line in the Shawshank Redemption. Get busy living or get busy dying. Uh, but, but you know what? Uh, there, there are movie lines for almost any occasion. <laughs> uh, so true. Yeah. yeah. So true. Um, speaking of emotions, you lost your dad recently. He was important, obviously. You've talked about his work life. And you told me that you had some sort of a, a experience. He had a, a very favorite saying, and there was a story behind it. I'd love to hear that story. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, my dad went into hospice in November. So I did make a trip up there and, uh, you know, spent a little bit of time with him and, and, and said, uh, said goodbye. But um, he was a very funny guy. And even, you know, really on his deathbed, um, you know, the con last conversation I had with him, he pulled out some of these one-liners. He was just always famous for the one-liner, and they're always funny. And there was one particular one, uh, and it may sound a little morbid, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll connect it here in a second. Uh, you know, when he would be asked, um, you know, do you have a good time or are you having fun? He would say, 
I haven't had this much fun since grandma died. And I thought that was always just kind of a sarcastic, you know, uh, just part of his sarcastic sense of humor. Well, come to find out after his passing, uh, that came up and I heard the story that when he was 12 years old, he lost his grandmother. So this was probably in the 1940s. And at the wake, all the men go to the basement and they drink alcohol and they brought my dad with them. So at 12 years old, my dad is hanging out with all the old people, having a drink. So to him, he hasn't had this much fun since grandma died. Uh, so it was, it was, um, it was kind of neat how that all kind of connected. I just, it had always just kind of gone over my head uh, until we connected that. So that still puts a smile on my face. That puts a smile on my face. And it makes me think that we should all dig in a little deeper with those that we love and get to the core of things that are interesting or matter to them, even funny phrases. I mean, you never know. You might find out something's a movie line, or you might find out it's got this great family uh, sort of tale to it. That's, that's really wonderful. Yeah. So you were going to college and studying, and this college professor says, go sell something. Mm-hmm. And so you do work in the summer between your junior and senior years of selling books door to door. I cannot believe I bet there's a ton of interesting stories around selling books door to door, which no one does anymore. No, no. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I could talk to you, Scott, for an hour and just share story after story. You know, uh, yeah, I, 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 I went for it. I did that experience. He told me to go sell something. I really didn't think I wanted to be a salesperson. Uh, plus, you know, all my friends told me that I wouldn't be very good at it. So that's all I need to hear. And I'm all in. So uh, I'm, I'm going to go do this. And this is a company that uh, sent, uh, you know, college kids. They recruit college kids. You know, it's actually a company that started right around the time of the Fuller Brush Company. So that was just their, that was their model. And they would send you to a different part of the country. Why? Because it, um, it's just really easy to quit. It's really, really hard. So, you know, if you're doing this in your backyard, it's just, it'd make it so much easier just to wave the white flag. So uh, I moved down to central Georgia uh, and spent 13 weeks. And um, I, I learned so much about myself. I learned a lot about people. Um, you know, a couple of things I took away from that, and I think have always helped me in my career is that you know, there's just nothing that takes the place of hard work. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in an area where, you know, ever since fourth grade, all I can remember doing is either working, going to school or playing a sport. I mean, you just, you always did something, not a lot of idle time. So I've always had a good work ethic, but, you know, selling, you know, selling books door to door, you had to have that, but, you know, you also had to show up. You know, I was that guy that showed up at your door. You don't know who I am. Uh, So it it was about connecting with people quickly. You wanted to go inside their house and show them your books. And so, you know, hard work and how you show up. But to me also, just the the daily scorecard of selling and just the competitiveness to see my name at the top. And, um, you know, unfortunately, things worked out. I worked really hard and I ended up winning a top first year salesperson. Which, by the way, earned me a trip. First time I ever flew on a plane was to Mexico because I earned that uh, that uh, incentive trip. You know, 
one thing I'm going to call myself middle-aged. I'm not going to make any proclamations about you, but one thing about being middle-aged that I'm finding interesting is you have this sort of equal look back in life and forward. And looking back, we, only those of us that are at this age understand what Fuller Brush was or what Kirby Vacuum Cleaners were or Encyclopedia Britannica was. And there was, I'm not going to harken back to it was better then, but it was really a wonderful time in this country where you could show up at somebody's door and there wasn't the concern we have about who you were or what you were doing. And there were people that literally let you in the front door to ch chat about something you were selling. Can, can you remember any of those families or people and how pure that was? I'll tell you this, as you, it, just, it just popped into my mind. I remember meeting um, a young family and they were more interested. They they end up buying books, but they were more interested in just me and asking me questions. Why are you doing this? You know, tell me where you're from. And and you know, had a really nice conversation. And I leave. And uh, so so this is a, a job where you know you worked from pretty much eight in the morning till nine at night. And why so late? Because people work. You know, and you had the whole evening to try to connect with people. And in the summertime, it stays light a little bit later. But um, I remember uh, seeing a car kind of driving around really slowly. Um, and I see this car several times. And finally, this car pulls up next to me, and it's this family. And they had made dinner for me. Uh, so I had a plate of food. I had, you know, a cup of, uh, I guess, probably would have been sweet tea. And, and it just, um, you know, they just, my story and just, um, you know, my being there at 20 years old, just really had an impact on them. And they wanted to, they wanted to help. So uh, there, there were numerous families that, that really um, opened their arms to me. And it, and it really taught me a lot. Now, I had a lot of experiences on the other side as well. But, um, but you always remember, you remember those, um, you know, those really special moments. You know, my yeah. wife and I, for the longest time, had a regular visitor once or twice a year, um, a fellow brought a young child with him that he proclaimed was from a big city far away that was really struggling. And they were collecting funds to try to do something around their church organization support of youth. And we were pretty sure that it wasn't on the up and up. And part of that demonstration was a document that he had inside of a sleeve of plastic that didn't look very valid. And it was his way of saying we're legit. And instead of providing them cash, we would always go to our pile of things that we're consistently taking to St. Vincent's or to Goodwill and say, could you use these things? And he was always very good about saying, yes, I will take that. That's wonderful. You know, our kids can use it. A family can use it. We later found out he was convicted of this scheme that he had been put uh, putting people through. And it didn't make us feel uh, put off at all. But to this day, um, he and his, I think, girlfriend have to send us restitution of 15 cents every quarter or something for the value of the things that we claimed that they had uh, been given. And I wish that wasn't the way it was. I, I felt good enough. We felt good enough just making that connection with him and whatever young person came along. We always took the time to chat with them. And yet here we are today really you know, hopeful with our ring doorbell to 
figure out who's at the door before we open it. It's just different. It has to be. And um, I really am grateful for you telling the story about the food because that was their demonstration of, of you know, a gift of peace and a gift of love. That That's really, really pure. Yeah. So you got started in the eye care industry with Elcon when they were pretty early in their game. And I'm curious, was that before the OptiFree contact lens solution product launch or about the time of it? So I came in and sold OptiFree. So that was established. Um, okay. there, there was not an OptiFree uh, daily cleaner and there was not an Opti free enzymatic you remember the enzymatic tablets right that's what i was going to ask you yeah <laughs> so um and, and obviously alcon at the time had uh some some pharmaceutical drugs i mean top of the line pharmaceutical drugs i like? think uh, uh so uh siloxin would have been the big gun and tobradex um i think uh, nafcon a had just come off of rx so that talks about how long ago that was uh uh, but since some, again, some, some, some really, really good products and, you know, was there quite a while to see new products and see the development, uh, of that company and, and really where it, where it went. It was really, exciting, and, really exciting time. It had to be an exciting time because it wasn't, when we talk about products, we talk about pharmaceutical products, not, uh, hardware products because they didn't get into the contact lens line until they acquired SIBA many years later. So you were really going into uh, talking to optometrists about the products that were there and you were repping to OD practices. And I guess it'd be interesting for you to share with us what that was like, uh, particularly because it was at an early time when optometry was gaining some therapeutic privileges in some of the states. Um, what did you learn about optometrists in that process? Well, uh, you know, I, I think um, what I learned early on is is that optometry was a profession that uh, there will always be pain points, but uh, optometrists, uh, just to me, um, you know, it, it seemed like a profession where it, at some point that the cards were just stacked against them. You know, this is the early 90, 90s. The uh, the profession was really fighting for everything that it, uh, you know, that it's, um, you know, that it's, that it's gotten and has continued to. And it's, it's really been exciting to see that. Um, you know, I, I also learned that, um, that when you walk into a practice, um, there's, they're seeing reps from all different companies who play the same story over and over. Hey, my product is better than their product. Use my product. And um, what, what I learned, Scott, is that, that um, I needed to differentiate myself and knowing that there's these pain points and knowing that, that it's not just about the product, it's about the practice, it's about the success of the practice. I, I really kind of conditioned myself to having different types of conversations with, uh, with the doctors I called on. I would often ask them, what's your strategy to grow? You know, and oftentimes they would look at me like, like I had two heads because no one else was asking that question, um, but but understanding what they're trying to do and if there's any way that I could support them or help them, uh, you know, it, it not only differentiated me, but it would endear them to my company and my products as well. As you mentioned, the, uh, the uh, I was in Northwest Ohio and in, in Southern Michigan as a sales rep uh, in the early 90s, 
And Michigan, I think, passed their TPA bill, I think, in 1994. So I, I really I did everything I could to get myself up to speed uh, to become a real resource for um, for these optometrists. And uh, I'll tell you one quick story. Um, uh, it, it was uh, I, I went into a practice and uh, the doctor had come out. And, and again, these these guys were just they were all kind of uh, practicing and, and writing prescriptions for the first time. So uh, I walk into the practice and the doctor comes out and says, hey, I have a patient who's got a, uh, you know, a bacterial infection and I'm using siloxane and it's not going away. He said, and he asked me, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, are you sure it's bacterial? And he, he described it and it sounded like a bacterial infection. And then I asked him, well, how are you dosing siloxane? And, and he told me, and I said, well, uh, I'm not the doctor, but I would heavy up the dose. In fact, I would dose it like it's a corneal ulcer. And I, and I, I, I and in fact, I think it's still etched in my mind. I, I explained to him how to, to do that, how to, how to dose it for a corneal ulcer. So I, I leave and, and so forth, didn't think much of it, but uh, a month later, I come back into his practice and I walk in the door and the, the receptionist pointed at me. She said, you, the doctor wants to see you. Of course, the first thing I'm thinking is what's wrong? Uh, what I do. And um, so I waited a few minutes and he came out and he said, hey, you know, I wanted to let you know after our last conversation, I, right after you left, I called the local ophthalmologist that I work with. And you know what he told me? He told me the exact same thing you did. And it, it changed, you know, certainly with him, it changed that relationship. Uh, and it was always very special to me. I, I never tried to play the role of a doctor, but when a doctor looks at you almost as a colleague or a peer, that's a really special thing. And, and these, some of these little stories will just still stay with me forever. At one point, probably our first meeting, you showed up in my practice as you were a manager of the rep that came into my practice. And I know that I spent time, I, don't, I wouldn't say dueling with reps, but I was looking for somebody who had done their homework. And I think it's a little harder today for reps to get through the wall to the doctor. And I understand that doctors are trying to run businesses and their time's important. But I think that there are ways that the doctor and the representative can create those kind of partnerships. Do you remember anything about coming into my practice? Probably better than I do, but I, I don't remember much of it. I, I remember, I think you were practicing with Dr. Connors at the time. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I remember sitting in an office with you. I don't really remember what we talked about, but I remember what I remember about you was, uh, your energy. I mean, you, you, um, I think you might've had a little hair back then. Maybe we both did, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, sitting down, um, and engaging with you with, uh, you know, you're, you've got a very creative and innovative mind. But you could just tell that there, there's a there's a percentage of, of doctors that you meet with and you can just tell they're looking for little nuggets. Um, they're, they're looking for something. And and to your point, you can't give everybody time, but you're going to give time to those that you think might bring some real value to the practice. So I, I remember your 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 energy and your openness um, and, and and having a good conversation. But that's. Gosh, that had to be in the late 90s. So I don't really remember what it was about, but uh, 
I'm sure it was a very nice and engaging conversation. And I think that the moral of the story for me, along with this dialogue, is that we should think about those representatives as certainly somebody who wants to see the share of their product in our practice grow, but that they're also willing to earn it. And I think too many times we have a jaded approach to the representatives that they're coming in purely for how it changes their quarterly numbers. And of course, that is the metric, but it's, um, it's, it's lost from time to time that somebody can be a resource the way you were to that doctor. And, and that's not playing a doctor, right? It's talking about the variety of ways that a various type of product can be applied to the patient's wellness. So that's awesome. You mind if I share another just real quick story with you? I love it. This just this just popped into my into my mind. I, I remember really really wanting to see a doctor. He was in suburban Detroit, and he just would not see me. And he didn't. I don't think he saw very many uh, sales reps. I was just. I, I thought of every way I could get in front of him. So you know what I did? I booked an eye exam with him. And so I I I. Uh, I'm wait. I'm now a patient, so I, I walk into uh, his exam and I sit down. I said, "I got a confession here. I want an eye exam, but that's not really why I'm here." And I explained who I was, and he got a good laugh. And he's like, "Wow, that's this is new for me." He said, "I tell you what, uh, I will see you, but don't ever waste my time. Meaning, don't come in once a month and show me the company brochures." If you've got something, I'm going to listen to you, but don't, don't blow it. And, um, you know, I probably saw the guy three, four times a year, went into his practice every month, but probably saw him three, four times a year. Um, and, uh, so that, that's another one that I think about just puts a smile on my face. That's cool. You ended up then going to Hoya and you helped position that company as an ally to the ECP and aim to help them with great products for great patients. And I think that, you know, as a person who's got a sales and marketing background, that positioning is so important when an industry vendor is thinking about presenting itself to a doc. Um, if you think about the industry vendors that sometimes consider the patients to be theirs and not the doctors, it's really easy for the doctor to see that. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what you're proud of in your time that you were at Hoya. Yeah, you know, um, it's it's. Um, I'm proud that we were able to kind of cut through some of the noise. <clears throat> you know, we talked about earlier the fact that every company plays the same game. Hey, our product is better, and nobody listens to that. So you have to you have to be fresh. You have to have a message that that somebody will listen to, especially if you're a smaller company that doesn't have a lot of resources. You just have to you have to talk differently. So one of the things that we did is we started positioning the values of the company, um, you know, and there's fundamentally, you know, two different types of companies. There are companies that, 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 that focus really solely on the ECP. And then there's companies that are more consumer companies, like you mentioned, who, who um, you know, omni-channel, they'll sell their products uh, any way they can to the end user, including directly to the end user. So, um, you know, that was a that was something that would catch people's attention and allow them to, to sit down. But, you know, Scott, um, positioning um, Hoya as the ally, um, everybody says, I want to be your partner. 
partnership is such an overused, cliched word. Um, but you think about what an ally is. It's a partner. It's a partner in a very combative environment, right? So, so it's just a little different spin on how we can how we can work with you and be your partner. And and frankly, too, it's just it's all the years of just. Uh, knowing and getting to know uh, optometry and optometrists and um, there's a little bit of this David and Goliath syndrome that um, you know connecting with them and say hey you know what I understand owning and operating a successful independent practice is hard it's really hard and you know what yeah you know we're here to help you because an ECP company only succeeds when you succeed Sorry, spam call coming in. No problem. So, um, and, and again, that's a message. So, so you, you lead with our intentions. Our intentions are to help you be successful because an ECP company is only successful when you're successful. And I think just creating that, I'm really proud of that, in creating that, um, you know, that market positioning and allowing it to break through and all the feedback from from customers who've joined us or who, who would hear me speak from the podium and come off the podium and say, uh, uh, look, nobody else is talking like that. Um, you know, um, in fact, one, one particular uh, optometrist who works uh, for a, a big industry company came up to me and said, uh, Greg, I've known you for a long time. Um, if I still had a practice, I'd want to work with you. I'd want to work with your, your company and your products. So again, I think just figuring out how to break through, you know, all the noise and the clutter is something I'm really proud of. And it, it feels like it's more than a message. It's really a mantra. It's, it's a, a, what Simon Sinek calls in the book, The Infinite Game, a just cause, that there is this want to position the doctor as the hero of the story, as opposed to my product as the hero of the story. And um, there are great ways I experienced that from you doing your job when I, in my last job and you in that job had been working together. And I think you did it well. And I, I would ask our listeners to think about sort of filtering through the conversations they have with their vendors in that way. Think about where they are in the market. Are they protecting something? Are they that young startup that's trying to build something? And are they thinking about you as somebody who is doing the important work next to the patient or is it they that did the important work in the R&D you know, center that uh, is, is being first positioned? Now, with all that being said, you have ECPs that are your heroes. Uh, while you've been serving ECPs, you had a pretty important and significant eye issue come up. And I want to tell you about it. I want you to tell about it from the patient's perspective. But I want my audience to understand my story of your story before you tell it. When we spoke at a meeting, I would say it was something like five years ago, we were chatting and reconnecting and you impressed on me something that stuck with me to this day. And that was, you said something like, I wish more ODs were aware of the fact that while they're in the vision business, they're really in the quality of life business. And I got to tell you, I can, I can remember where we were standing when you said it. It was at the end of a meeting after I'd made a presentation um, and we were face to face and you really meant it when you said it. And it was like, I just want to, if every OD could hear this, I, I wish they would know it. So I've reviewed that phrase many times, 
almost every time crediting you and saying there was this guy that worked not as an ECP, but for ECPs that came up with this idea. So I'm on record here with the sandbox story, thanking you for that clarity that we are in the quality of life business. And so with that background, tell us about your eye care experience as a patient. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm impressed that uh, I didn't know that anybody listened to my stories. So I'm, I'm impressed that you did. <laughs> uh, so, um, you, you know, being around optometrists and, 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 you know, connecting with them and often asking them, why do you do what you do? Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I would hear the stories, you know, about, about what, what led them down that path to become uh, an optometrist, or I've asked, um, you know, uh, doctors from other disciplines, why did you become a doctor? And <clears throat> I was, I'm always interested in that because that, that gets to really the core of, of why you do what you do. And it was this uh, experience. So it was in the early 2000s. Um, I was playing in a basketball league and I, I, I come down with a rebound and I get poked in the eye uh, hard. Uh, and as my, it was, it's my left eye, um, I, 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 my eye swells up immediately and I've got, I've got double vision. And guess what? I, I put a little, taped a little patch over mine and went back in the game. <clears throat> um, that's the story for another time. Uh, but, but I go to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really swollen and I go to, um, uh, my local optometrist and, and I don't think she would mind me, me sharing. <clears throat> it was uh, Carol Brown, Carol Alexander, who's with Johnson and Johnson. Her practice is right around the corner from where I lived. And so I call and, um, the, the, uh, uh, person said, well, Dr. Al uh, Dr. Brown's not available. Would you like to see Dr. Alexander, Kevin Alexander? I'd love to see Kevin. So Kevin is the one that, uh, that looked at me and he, he, um, he saw the tear in my retina. Uh, I went and had it lased. Everything's fine. Um, fast forward 10 years or so into the, uh, early 2010s, my, uh, my retina detaches, you know, quite, uh, <clears throat> quite a, quite an issue. I have the surgery, I have the gas bubble. And as you know, I, I developed the, uh, uh, the PSC, you know, right after that, but, you know, I saw really well with my right eye. So I just kind of let that cataract go, uh, until about two years after that, when my, when my right eye detaches. So now here I am, with a detached right retina, retina surgery, gas bubble, and a, and a stage four cataract in my left eye. So, so I lost really all my functional vision. You know, I've, I've dined in the dark with Tom Sullivan. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I've tried to have those experiences. You put the blindfold on, but you know, you could always peek underneath there to see what you're really, spe uh, you know, spearing or whatever. I lost functional vision. I couldn't do any, I couldn't see my, my cell phone. Um, you know, I laid in bed, you know, the show it's called the, how it's made. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I could make anything now because you know, they, they, they kind of narrate that, that show. And it's a very, I love the show. It's a very interesting show. Uh, I also learned this was in March and I also learned that, um, you know, listening to NCAA basketball games, uh, they don't they don't say what the score is because it's always on the screen. So they just assume that you're keeping up with that, and they talk about everything else. And 
so there's all these little nuances of of what uh, what your vision really means, and it just was it just really really hit home with me. And I, I may have shared this story with you. I, I don't quite remember, but uh, shortly it was you know probably several days after after you know post op, uh, and I remember it was a Saturday. Um, I was home alone, and I decided I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to go to the gas station to get a cup of coffee. So, you know, you can pull out. I'm sorry to interrupt. Was this your independent spirit just saying, you're going to go do this? You know, I'm going to, I'll tell the story, but I I really thought a lot about this. What what would possess me to do this? So I've I've, I've thought about this and I think I I figured it out. But, um, you know, I pull out of the garage and you can do that. You've done, I've done it so many times that, you know, you, you just know where all the points are and, and I'm driving out of my subdivision and, and I, I really, I, I could see, you know, I could kind of see trees and, you know, shapes and whatever. Um, but even before I left my subdivision, I'm saying out loud, this is a bad idea. Uh, I turn onto the boulevard. It's, it's a, it's split there. So there's trees, kind of trees on both sides. And I, I could not see lines in the road and I'm driving. I have to drive about a mile. Right. So it's not real far. And that's what that's what in my head I thought I, I can I can do this. I can pull this off as I'm getting closer to the to the stoplight where I knew it was. I couldn't see it. So but, you know, what I could see were the taillights. Fortunately, there was a car at the stoplight. I could see the taillight. So I pull in behind it and all I had to do is go straight through the stoplight. And then I parked. I go in and get my coffee. I come back out and I waited until I see, you know, shadow of a car go by to that same stoplight. And I pulled in behind it so I would know when to go. And I made my, made my way home. Probably one of the dumbest things I've ever done. But your question, I asked myself a lot, what would possess me to do that? And, and what I came up with, Scott, is just this was when you lose, when you have vision and you lose it, it's the it's 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 the realization of the empowerment that vision really gives you, and and this was my way of proving that I'm still empowered. I can't see very well, but I can still do all the things that I want to do and when I want to do it. And that realization has what's really given me a special, even a more special affinity to being in this industry and dealing with people like yourself and your colleagues, people who give others the gift of sight. And when I said, I wish more of your colleagues could really wrap their head around this from a patient's perspective, it's because I think that you start, you, you, you know, you start going through the motions and, and there's a level of indifference that, that happens. And yes, you come to work and you understand that you're helping people, but do you really understand what that vision means to somebody and your ability to give that to them uh, you know, to me, it's just, it's, um, it's, it's hard to put in. I can tell you the story, but it's hard to put into words. And so if I had told you that uh, I wish more of your colleagues understood that, it's just understanding what that really means to a patient who really is in trouble and, and really, really needs your help. There's so much there that I want to hit on. But the first thing I think about is that there are a lot of different jobs and professions that deliver quality of life. I don't know the first thing about dealing with anything electrical in my home. 
I don't have any clue about plumbing and backed up, you know, pipes. And when I had a backup, for example, of pipes in my house and the guy that came with the little thing that he shoved down there and cleaned it all out and the backup stopped, he made my life wonderful. Mm -hmm. I think of airline pilots and how sometimes they're flying military veterans remains underneath a plane or taking somebody to see a loved one for the last goodbye or taking a newly married couple somewhere on honeymoon. And, you know, you kind of go, wow, you know, that, that all gets really deep. But in any of those cases, I think the reason it gets lost on us as I'm listening to you as the provider is that it becomes rote after a while. Yes, you like the patients, the relationships. Sometimes it's a patient with some uh, advanced astigmatic issue you have to deal with. Sometimes it's a kid with amblyopia. Sometimes it's a patient with a head injury. Whatever the case may be, you've got these unique perspectives and cases coming your way. You depersonalize them a little bit. You forget that the patient wants to go get a cup of coffee. And, and then I think, man, the driving puts you at risk, but you were filling up a cup of coffee and bringing that back home. That was in itself. <laughs> a risk, right? You were, you were going to be Cosmo Kramer there and, uh, and, and get yourself a lawsuit that you could file on behalf of uh, the hot coffee you were going to spill on yourself. It, it, that independent act is what most of our patients want to continue to do when they get vision compromised. Yeah, that's, free that's wonderful. Free lattes for life. That's free possible. lattes for life. <laughs> <laughs> so back to your career experiences. Um, you know, you've committed yourself to eye care for a couple of really important jobs. You're, um, you've got something to share, I think, to to tell us what do the industry companies do for optometrists aside from the re direct relationships that's behind the scenes that an optometrist and a doctor and the staff don't see. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think you know what they probably do see. They see the sponsorships, and you know, I think. Um, you know, we, we kind of talked about it earlier when companies hire the right reps who really understand uh, the value that they can bring. It, it becomes more than about products. So, uh, you know, doctors who have good reps see it, um, uh, you know, uh, understanding there's a lot of them out there, a lot of really good people who, who care. Um, but that's probably not always something that's front of mind. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, my last company, um, you know, on several occasions uh, really stepped up behind the scenes. We really didn't we didn't make a big deal about it. But we um, <clears throat> when when COVID um, when COVID broke out, uh, we have a safety eye division and we were working with local optometrists to provide uh, PPE and safety eyewear to first responders. Um, so uh, you have that and, and, and on numerous occasions. Uh, natural disasters, you know, the hurricanes hitting Houston, you know, we worked with some local, uh, local doctors and, and, uh, you know, really helped them uh, to get their communities back um, on, on, on their feet. And, and, you know, that's, that's when you see, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes, uh, you know, bad things to happen to, to bring out the best in people. And, you know, you, you find your, you find those people, you align yourself with those people and you support them, you know, you support them any way you can. So I'll finish by giving you the last word. What advice do you have for this audience of people involved in the eye care industry on how they might think about going into the future? 
You know, there's a there's a couple of things, Scott, that I would say. I think there's a real danger right now that I see, <clears throat> and 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 it's what I call the battle for the mind of the patient. Um, and and here's here's an example. And I remember it was, it was I think uh, it was January second of 2018. My newsfeed comes up, MSN, and you know uh, they have all the the stories. And I see this story. It's uh, the 28 things you should not buy in 2018. I thought, oh, okay. I'm gonna. I clicked on it and I start scrolling through. Number 12 was eyeglasses. And uh, and I can summarize the paragraph to say you should buy your eyeglasses from places like Zenny because your eye doctor rips you off. That's it's my my translation. I could give you I could give you uh, countless examples, Scott. Um, of, of information that's going to the patient that they're processing <clears throat> and in 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 that battle could end up in the commoditization of services that, that doctors provide and products so I think when you as you're going into the future we need to think about what's happening right now because this battle is happening right now and you know the fix is education, but you have to educate patients differently. You know you have to educate them in a way that they want to be educated, right? I mean, uh, people don't answer their phone anymore. People don't really look at email. I get so many spam emails. I don't, you know, you don't look at those. So it's finding unique and innovative ways to communicate and educate patients. Uh, that's the here and the now. I mean, conflating a, a refraction in an eye exam. That, that's a real problem. I mean, your patients need to understand what is an eye exam because it's not, you can't get that on your cell phone, but, but many people are being told otherwise. So, so I think, um, I think addressing that now, that's going to help the future because uh, ed education is king. I also think, Scott, that, that optometry is going to have to figure out a way to really embrace telehealth. Um, I, I had COVID a um, couple of months ago, and congestion was one of my big symptoms. Uh, that congestion turned into vertigo, which I had no idea what was going on, but I had a, a televisit with a doctor, and all I did was explain my symptoms. Yep, sounds like a classic case of uh, benign positional vertigo from congestion, and, and you know, um, uh, treated me, and, and, and I think that that's a... There's, there's some things you can't do virtually, like what you and I are doing right now, but I think figuring out how optometry can embrace it, that's what patients are going to want. Um, the old model of just coming into the practice and picking your frames out and, you know, and, and buying things, um, you know, that's, that, that's, um, that's going to go by the wayside. So I would encourage your colleagues to really think about how, how can you innovatively communicate with patients differently uh, with the right message and, and embrace some of the newer technologies. And, and really, I guess, as, like Wayne, Gres uh, Wayne Gretzky always said, um, skate to where the puck is going. You know, what I take from that is that we generally believe in our practices and the way we deliver care that the demonstration of the level of sophistication through the equipment, the process, the conversations, the experience, the displays, um, the great products we apply to the patient, the great recommendations we make should by themselves be a conveyance to the patient of we really care about you.
but there is nothing that replaces the human word when it's spoken by the doctor and the team. And I'll give credit to Phil Kiefer, who uh, in 2003-ish was president of J&J Vistacon, and he was supporting the infant's eye care program at AOA that I had been participant uh, on the committee with. And Phil and I were together and he said, you know, I had an eye exam and I know what the optometrist was doing for me. And all I asked the optometrist to do while they're doing the examination is tell me what that dang bright light in my eye is helping them see. And he said something like, if you just say that as I'm looking inside your eye, I can look at the small blood vessels that can otherwise be seen in your body. Sometimes high blood pressure and diabetes first show themselves in the eyes. And it turns out I don't see that. And eye diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma can show up by me simply shining a light in your eye. And as I'm looking at those areas, I also don't see any problem. He said, just a narrative, just like you talked about the NCAA basketball announcers giving the score during the game would be a difference maker for how we might be able to grab that connection to the patient and change the narrative in their mind. And so I accept your challenge and I'm sharing it with our audience. I am glad you have been in the eye care profession. I hope we get you back in the eye care profession again someday soon. But in the meantime, I can't thank you enough for your enthusiastic participation in Sandbox Stories. Thank you for being here. It was my pleasure. And to my audience, thanks for listening to Greg's stories. Until my next Sandbox Story, be great at all you do.